The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great honor to be at Facebook New York. Facebook is terrific. Uh, We're going to do Ask the Donald. Let's have some fun. The number one question I have by far is, will I run for president? We're going to be announcing something very exciting. What you're hearing is a video posted to Facebook in March 2015, just a few weeks before Donald Trump announced he was running for president. It's a Facebook Q&A kind of thing where people post questions and Trump answers them. Questions like how he likes to eat his eggs. Scrambled eggs or over easy eggs. I would say that's not the greatest question I've ever heard, but I would say over easy. What should my friend Tom Brady do about his situation? It's really interesting to watch this video because it's clear that even back then, this was a candidate that understood the importance and power of Facebook. We talk a lot about Trump and his Twitter accounts and his round-the-clock tweets, but leading up to the 2016 election, Facebook ended up being what was so critical in Donald Trump's ability to get his message out to potential voters. I had a really great time being at Facebook with all of these beautiful people. It's a great group of people, all very, very smart. That's why they're at Facebook. But we're going to be back. We're going to do more Ask the Donald. People like it. I like it. I like doing it. And it's just a great place. Good luck, everybody. And almost three years after Donald Trump made this video, we're still talking about Facebook's role in the presidential election. Because we've been hearing for months about Russia infiltrating Facebook to tamper with U.S. elections. And now we've got this new Facebook-related scandal, the investigation into this British company, Cambridge Analytica. And these are two issues that are very separate. But they both highlight some very similar questions. Questions about the way that Trump's campaign and other campaigns used laser-focused data to identify and influence American voters. We're thinking about whether a political candidate should have access to this kind of data, and whether a president has the responsibility or the incentive to protect Americans' internet privacy. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're going to try to make sense of this Cambridge Analytica scandal. Like, what does or doesn't it have to do with President Trump, with his presidential campaign, and with the future of government regulation in the tech world? But before we dive in, I'm going to start with a little bit of honesty. To me, at least, this story is really confusing. And it's easy to get lost in how a random data analytics company ends up like totally upending Facebook and sparking all this scrutiny from Capitol Hill and getting people to question the 2016 election. Like, how did we get there? I don't get it. You might not get it. But we brought in someone who does get it. I'm uh, Tony Rahm, and I'm a tech policy reporter here at The Post. And that means that Tony covers the way that big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter intersect with the U.S. government. I feel like we have to have one of those Star Wars scrolls uh, for this (laughs) story. But a long time ago, in a year far, far away, um, a couple years ago, on Facebook for third-party apps, you were able to ask for a lot of information about Facebook users. So if we had created a game uh, and we had that game on Facebook, you could request not only personal information for the person playing the game, but information about their friends. But it wasn't just games like Farmville that took advantage of this feature. Political campaigns did as well. Wait, so so when you say 
that they were collecting data? Like, what kinds of information are we talking about? Yeah, remember, Facebook is a warehouse of personal information about you. But, you know, we know that they were able to get information uh, like your name, uh, the things that you've liked on the site, uh, the sorts of things that if you piece them all together, you can figure out who that person is, the kinds of interests they have and so forth. And that's really valuable if you're a political strategist or a campaigner or an advertiser. You get to figure out how to target information to people. And that's the kind of work that's done by Cambridge Analytica, this political data analysis company that was hired by the Trump campaign before the 2016 election. Basically, it's a company that uses data and maps and algorithms to help political campaigns figure out how to target voters. And Cambridge Analytica's bread and butter is this thing called a psychographic profile. So in this particular instance, Cambridge Analytica sought to create psychographic profiles of voters. Essentially, uh, that, that's a very scary sounding name. It is. It is a very, very strange sounding name. But it, it was it was essentially a really nice way of saying uh, they wanted to know what your hopes and fears and dreams and aspirations are so that they could better target marketing to you. But they had marketed this as uh, their big claim to fame in politics. But in order to create psychographic profiles of voters, you have to have a lot of data about them. You have to know about them. And how do you get that data? You get people to answer these, like, fun personality quizzes that are posted on Facebook. Quizzes that were created and disseminated by third-party companies. And at the same time that these outside companies were collecting the quiz results from hundreds of thousands of Facebook users, they were also scraping data from those users' profiles and from the profiles of all of their friends. And that turned out to be upwards of 50 million people from around the world whose data was collected, stored, and ended up in the hands of Cambridge Analytica. Now, Facebook says it asked Cambridge Analytica to delete that data. It changed its policies in 2014 and 2015 to prevent all kinds of third-party apps uh, from collecting information about users' friends. Uh, But the recent allegations from a whistleblower, uh, Christopher Wiley, uh, in the UK, suggest that Cambridge Analytica maybe didn't delete that data. It used that data, which is an allegation that Cambridge Analytica denies. So now we find ourselves in this weird place where potentially this political firm has information on Americans uh, and folks who don't even know that the firm exists. And there are other reasons why people view this firm as kind of shady. Like, there was this video that was recently published by Britain's Channel 4, where the company's CEO was caught on a surveillance camera apparently talking about illegal activities. Like, he was encouraging sting operations involving bribes and paid sex, all in an effort to swing a political campaign in Sri Lanka. But it's not just Cambridge Analytica that looks really shady here. This is also a really big problem for Facebook because they were already in trouble with the federal government for this big scandal that happened back in 2011. And at that time, it came to light that Facebook users that had set some of their information to private, that information was still being shared and made public. There were a number of complaints that had been raised by consumer protection groups, but the thrust of it came down to this. It was, if you said that you wanted, you know, your piece of information to be treated one way and Facebook went and changed its settings and something that you listed as private suddenly was public, uh, you know, they shouldn't have the ability to do that. And as a result, the federal government forced Facebook to agree to a settlement. 
And that settlement mandated that Facebook had to overhaul its privacy protection practices. They had to get your explicit permission before they took a piece of information that you gave to them and used it in a new way, uh, you know, a way that maybe you hadn't anticipated when you turned that information over to the company. And if Facebook failed to keep users' private information actually private, they would be violating the settlement that they signed, and they could get in trouble for that. And if you break that settlement, a legal settlement with the agency, you could face really steep fines. In this case, we're talking about $40,000 per violation. And so if you do the math on the back of a napkin, you know, we could be talking about fines well into the millions of dollars or past the millions of dollars if they find that Facebook violated the settlement that they brokered in 2011. So one of the things that everyone is asking is this. Did Facebook violate the terms of that settlement? And how did Facebook let this happen twice? So... Who's looking into this? Like, who's investigating this? Yeah, I think the question is who's not looking into it at this point. Uh, but we have we have a couple. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission is the big privacy and security watchdog here in the United States. And the agency made the rare decision to tell everybody that it was investigating Facebook for what had happened with Cambridge Analytica. Then you have a whole bunch of folks in Europe who really want to investigate this. And European regulators have been super ready to go after U.S. tech companies when they run afoul of the rules. We have more than 30 state attorneys general. And we have three congressional committees uh, here in the United States that have announced that they want to hold hearings and invite Mark Zuckerberg to come testify. And of course, if we're talking about Facebook and efforts to influence the outcome of the 2016 election, we're going to end up talking about special counsel Robert Mueller. Not because this is related in any way to Russia, but because there's a chance that folks in the Trump campaign could have been aware that there was shisty stuff happening at this data analytics company. But we don't know fully what happened with the Trump campaign and how much it had used this. We do know, though, that Robert Mueller is taking a look at Cambridge Analytica. He's asked the questions. Uh, we don't know exactly what the questions are because we unfortunately can't peer behind the curtain there. But I don't think anybody is out there saying that what the Trump campaign did was wrong. One of the concerns is that Cambridge Analytica itself had connections to members of the Trump team. Steve Bannon was vice president of the company for a while and then later served on its board of directors. So in theory, he could get in trouble if it turned out that he knew that Cambridge Analytica was doing something illegal. And because Cambridge Analytica is a British company, there's also this issue of foreign workers. And many of the folks with Cambridge Analytica who seem to have done work on the 2016 election are not U.S. citizens. Under U.S. law, those foreign nationals aren't supposed to have direct roles in U.S. campaigns. So that's the question right now. You know, even though some of them may be from Canada or from the U.K., close allies of the United States, like the law says that they're not supposed to be working in that way on U.S. campaigns. And so you've had folks um, in the in the consumer uh, protection community who have asked the FEC and the Justice Department to look into that to see what may have happened there. So we've got this kind of shadowy British company that says that they have these vast databases of information to make psychographic profiles of potential Trump voters. And we know that all of this data should have been deleted, but somehow it wasn't deleted, and that it may have actually had an effect on the 2016 election. So this all sounds super creepy, right? For somebody who's been writing about political data and political privacy for a decade, it is a little ironic that, like, now it's starting to really sort of take root. That's Daniel Kreese. He's an associate professor in the School of Media and Journalism at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And he's got two takeaways here. One, 
nobody really knows if Cambridge Analytica's psychographic profiles had any actual effect on the election. He said that these companies are always trying to exaggerate how effective they are. And two, there's nothing new about these kinds of, like, next-level big data tactics in politics. I remember writing a piece back in the Stanford Law Review called Yes, We Can Profile You. And this was in the context of the Obama 2008 campaign about all the ways in which um, the Obama team was garnering hundreds of millions of pieces of information uh, about the electorate and using them in the advertising they were run and using that in their field campaigning, using that in the context of their social media outreach. And yet it kind of just fell on deaf ears. Because five or 10 years ago, most people weren't hyper-concerned about how their Facebook data was being used by the campaigns. People actually thought that it was cool and exciting that Obama was using all this data because, as Daniel explains, politicians on both sides of the aisle had the chance to harness the power of Facebook to win over voters. So Facebook is at the center of the political universe, and there's there's a simple reason why. It's because everyone is there. It's the biggest, most general interest medium where campaigns could go and reach everybody. Other social media platforms have more specialized and more niche audiences, like Twitter, for instance, um, has super politically engaged people and lots of journalists. But it's not the way to speak to the mass public. Facebook is really the medium that enables you to do that. But the idea of using data to identify and track voters, that goes back way further than Facebook or social media or even radio or TV or telephones or any of the other kind of modern canvassing techniques. I mean, you could you could go back to the mid 1800s and chart the history of political data, the ways in which representatives of various parties have sought to figure out who voters are, which voters are on their side and try to develop techniques to turn people out at the polls. The historian Michael McGurr uh, has sort of written a lot about Williams Jennings Bryan. He's this guy who ran for president three times around the turn of the 20th century. He was getting on average of like 2,000 letters and telegrams a day from supporters during his first campaign for the presidency, and that was back in 1896, and 250,000 letters in all. And what Brian's brother and his wife did was they created a card file of supporters who were writing to him where they kept a list and linked supporters' names to their party affiliation, their job, their religion. It was one of the first known massive voter databases in America. And they kept this file updated for 30 years. Um, And they used that to send out regular mailings to the entire uh, Bryan network. Um, And it had 200,000 names in 1897 and a half a million names by 1912. Wait, and those were all sort of handwritten and hand filed? Absolutely. Yep. Um, It was an index card file. Um, And I think what you see over the course of the 20th century is that Those files gradually become much more sophisticated, um, particularly as technologies develop. And political parties started adopting this practice. And by the 1980s, the Republicans are really pioneering direct mail, where um, they're developing targeting mailers um, that are designed to appeal to certain segments of the electorate. Um, and doing so on the basis of the voter files that the two parties have and commercial data. And, you know, again, sending these targeted mailers to to people to mobilize them, to get them to turn out to the polls. And then data becomes a big part of television ad sales. 
like political campaigns want to know what kind of person is watching which shows or which channels at what particular time of day. And that kind of information has only gotten more precise in the 21st century. The reality is, is that campaigns don't have the ability to contact everybody. And particularly in our day and age, when attention is much more fragmented than it was 20, 30 years ago, when the public is doing things like time shifting their television habits, when there's hundreds of different cable channels, not to mention things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, where people are consuming content, campaigns can't run ads and see everybody anymore. Um, Campaigns have to use data to figure out multiple ways of which voters do I need to be targeting, how is best to reach them, and with what message. And that world looks a lot more complicated today than it did 30 years ago. Have there been any moments in the past where people kind of bristled at the idea that that campaigns had so much information about them? That's a great question. So if you think back to the 2012 Obama campaign, there were sort of questions around the campaign sort of use of predictive modeling um, to try to figure out people's political preferences and try to score every member of the electorate on a basic set of, of measures about whether somebody was likely to support Obama or not, whether they were likely to turn out to vote, whether they were likely to be persuadable, and then likely to be responsive to specific appeals. In the context of that election, a number of journalists sort of raised questions about what sort of data does the Obama campaign um, have? What do political parties sort of store on us? There was a survey that showed that overwhelming majorities of Americans sort of believed um, that uh, political privacy was uh, was important, that campaigns shouldn't target on the basis of what they know about them, etc. However, I think, frankly, until this election cycle, that hasn't quite reached critical mass in terms of spawning sort of broader sets of questions about what should be questions around how we think about political data as a class of data? Should there be limits on these things? And what's the role of you know for-profit commercial firms like Facebook safeguarding uh, the political use of their platforms and political data or giving people control over their data? So do you see some hypocrisy here? Just in terms of the idea that, you know, during the 08 Obama campaign that the tactics that they used for targeting voters were considered, you know, innovative and and exciting, or at least by some people, and that there wasn't, it sounds like there wasn't that much backlash. And now, I mean, you could argue that these are the same kinds of tactics, and uh, we're seeing that it's this grave invasion of privacy. Well, first of all, I mean, I think that that it is probably absolutely true that people do read their concerns in these things through the lens of their partisan identities and their partisan affiliations. So the fact that Obama was doing it back in 2008 and and 2012 probably didn't worry very many Democrats. Whereas, you know, the shoe is on the other foot in, in 2016, and it's the Trump team and the and the RNC that are using similar data. More Democrats are going to be sort of looking uh, with a wary eye at that, even though it appears that a lot of what the Trump team did in the RNC looks a lot like what the Obama team did in, in 2012. But I do think that there's some things that make this a little bit different now at this moment in 
in time. First of all, I think that what you saw, at least around the election, around things like fake news, around things like inauthentic accounts that were purchasing advertising and creating organic content that turned out to be foreign agents on Facebook, uh, for instance, really sort of led people to sort of just take a much more wary eye about Facebook and other Silicon Valley firms than they had four years prior. And then finally, and I think that this is the crucial and key part of the story, is that Everything the Obama campaign was doing in 2012 was in accordance with Facebook's own policies, and there was no violation of Facebook's terms of service. Um, Whereas in the Cambridge Analytica story, at least according to The Guardian and other reporting, there was a very clear breach in Facebook's data use policies um, in in ways that um, sort of violated right the terms that Facebook sort of sets out for third party data use, and makes this a clear sort of violation of at least sort of policies and best practices that sort of existed in this space. So that brings us back to today, and to these key questions that we're asking, partially because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. When we think about political advertising and sponsored posts on Facebook. How much of this just feels like a new, techier version of the same kinds of stuff that we've seen for decades? And how much of this feels excessively manipulative? As a country, are we okay with a president or his campaign playing these kinds of games with our data? And if we're not okay with it, will the government or the president take action to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future? That's a question we took to Tony, the tech policy reporter. Has Trump said anything about this? Trump has not said anything about this. Uh, You know, it's a weird place for a lot of lawmakers to be because on one hand, it's easy to call for privacy regulation and Democrats have done so for a long time. But Republicans have resisted regulation of this sort for a very, very long time. They just sort of think that industry can handle itself and the government has the tools to do the things it needs to do. And, you know, maybe they'll step in later if they have to. So it's a different place for conservatives to be in uh, than maybe they would be with some other industries. And then there's this idea that Congress and the president could work together on some kind of legislation, like a law that would address all of these existential questions about privacy and data collection in the Internet age. Like members of Congress for a very long time have sought to advance some sort of comprehensive online privacy law. Right now, under law, there are specific rules that govern kids' privacy and some students' privacy and financial transactions and health data, but there's no overarching law that governs the kind of stuff that you do on Facebook or Google or Twitter. But that's always been stuck because of lobbying by companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter that don't want to submit to new regulation. And then some of the Republicans who also don't believe in new regulation have pushed back on that. But you're now beginning to see Democrats and folks at the FTC and elsewhere are calling once again for more teeth so that they can go after some of these tech companies. Do you think President Trump would sign a bill that would make that happen? I think the question is, will there even be a bill that gets through the Congress? I I don't even know if we're at the point where, you know, if it got to the president's desk, he would do much about it. Democrats certainly tried under Barack Obama, and President Obama commissioned an entire process to create a privacy bill of rights for consumers. But that never really went anywhere either. So it's certainly an uphill battle, but the folks are hoping to seize on this incident to push something that's been stuck for a long time. But Daniel, the UNC professor, He says that there's one big reason why you may not see any action from President Trump or from most lawmakers, for that matter. 
President Trump likes Facebook a lot. Um, and, and one important reason why, you know, he should, um, because I think that like what Facebook really did was was help his campaign um, really sort of reach the audiences that it did and, and, and enable the Trump to uh, enable the president to speak directly to his supporters during the campaign cycle. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's what I mean, that it's like this sort of inherent conflict of interest, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, great. Yeah. So that starts us on a whole other topic that like one of the reasons why we have voter files to the extent that we do is because it's always been in politicians and elected officials best interest to have data about the electorate. Um, They want to know who their voters are. They want to know who their who the people they represent are in ways that they can sort of speak to them and engage them in political processes. And and that helps them in their reelection bids. You know, we um, with my colleagues, Regina Lawrence and Shannon McGregor, did a study where we interviewed most of the social media and digital directors from the 2016 cycle. Um, Everybody talked about how important Facebook was. Um, not just in terms of ads, but just in terms of uh, creating content on a regular basis, engaging supporters. Um, Donald Trump was uh, using Facebook Live um, to uh, uh, immense power, uh, drawing um, 7 million viewers um, to his third uh, debate live on the platform, also raising uh, $7 million in the, in the course of, of that evening while he was streaming the debate live. There was all this um, sort of just mass attention for campaigns sort of focused on Facebook. And these Facebook-centric strategies are not going away. Politicians have this tool that they can use to target and influence voters better than almost anything else. Why wouldn't they use it? So there absolutely is that um, conflict of interest when it comes to the fact that at the end of the day, you know, Donald Trump, Republicans in Congress, Democrats in Congress still see Facebook as a really useful tool in the context of their own electioneering um, and their own appeals to the citizenry. Because if there's anything that we learned from 2008 and 2012 and 2016, it's this. Campaigns that know how to wield the powers of Facebook and Twitter, that can use these platforms in new and unexpected ways, those are the campaigns that win. And yeah, we might soon see a reckoning of sorts, like big fines on Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg reluctantly showing up to testify on Capitol Hill. But that won't curb the impulse for political campaigns to use technology and big data in every way that they can to win elections. And any permanent solutions to this problem probably won't happen in time for the 2018 midterm elections. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lorraine Boglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. And special thanks to Tony Rahm and Daniel Kreese for help with this episode.
If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.